0: Hey everyone, I'm Ray Belli and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this podcast as a free and independent educational resource, you can support the show by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to Kim, Philip, and E for their recent contributions. About once a month I post a bonus episode over at Patreon, the latest of which covers the etymology of the word meretricious. If Patreon's not your thing and you'd prefer to make a one-time donation, you can do that at paypal.me/wordsforgranted. Okay, on to the show. Welcome to this interview episode of Words for Granted. Today we have with us Erica Oakrant, author of the new book, Highly Irregular, Why Tough, Through, and Don't Rhyme, and Other Oddities of the English Language. Erica, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Ray. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, so tell us a little bit about yourself, your work, and how you got attracted to language and linguistics in the first place.
1: Uh, well, I was always interested in language, and I even went to a College that had a linguistics major, a small college, Carleton College in Minnesota, and had a linguistics major. And I didn't even know it while I was there at the time. So I missed that opportunity, um, but later went on to study various languages, got a PhD in linguistics. Um, And while I was doing that, uh, procrastinating on that, I started looking into the topic of invented languages like Klingon and Esperanto. What's going on there? And then that turned into uh, my first book in the land of invented languages. Um, And after that, I started writing about language uh, for a popular audience. And in doing that, discovering the kinds of questions that people who aren't necessarily that interested in language uh, and linguistics are interested in. um, And that ended up uh, coming to this book, the the kinds of questions people want to know. Why does English do this? Um, So I set out to tackle those.
0: Okay, so spelling is one of these like most commonly observed irregularities um, in English, and it's in the title of your book. so in very general terms, what are some of the main factors that have contributed to English's irregular spelling over the course of its history?
1: Well, part of it is we adopted two we adopted two different technologies in what ended up being created as English spelling. We adopted the Latin alphabet and that caused its own problems because the Latin alphabet didn't have letters for some of the sounds that we had in in English, Um, some of the sounds which we don't have anymore, one being the h sound, which became the G-H spelling. But then we stopped saying the h, but we kept on with the G-H spelling, and now it's all kinds of confusion. And that's because of the second technology we adopted, which was the printing press. And we adopted the printing press at a very awkward time in the language so that these strange irregularities got ironed in because once you've got the printing press and you've got thousands of books going out and people learning to read and becoming literate, they learn it that way, and then that's the way they got to do it. And we can understand that because if you try to write English in a phonetic spelling way, it looks ridiculous, because it's not right to us because we didn't learn it that way, uh, even if it makes more logical sense. So. So, yeah, the printing press had a big uh, uh, it was a big influence on why we ended up keeping all these odd spellings long after their usefulness or representing of any kind of sound.
0: And you know so the the G h digraph is something I wanted to ask you about. So we have it in this um archaic, inconsistent sense of you know, in enough uh, dough. Et cetera. But we also there is one particular instance that you bring up in the book uh, where the GH digraph is for a hard G sound, which is seemingly random uh, in the word ghost. Uh, so what's what's the story there?
1: Yeah, that's a printing press issue too. the when it was um, William Kexton brought it over from the continent. He had been working in with Flemish speakers in Bruges and he and they learned the trade, which was then a very new trade and very hard to do. You're talking, you know, taking these tiny metal pieces, setting them in long rows. And it's very labor intensive and hard to train. Um there was a whole system of apprenticeship developed for it. So he brought them over with that, him and they that's how they spelled it in Flemish. It was G-H-E-E-S-T or something was their version of ghost. And um, there's no copy editors. There's no house style at this point. There's just uh, business being done. There's people setting the type and they set the type that way. And it was a very common phrase in a lot of in a lot of religious books, which are the things that were being passed around. Holy Ghost is a very common phrase. And it became the the way you look at the word and that's how it's supposed to be spelled. Um, it's got a g h, and it's because of those Flemish printers or Flemish typesetters um, who stuck it in without when there weren't any kinds of controls on what was happening in the printing press.
0: And if I'm not mistaken, I think they're, you know, during the same time period where Caxon was employing these Flemish uh, typesetters, there were also other uh, words that were spelled with this hard GH. But they've mostly, I mean, not mostly, they've all fallen out of usage. But for whatever reason, ghost has stuck, ar- stuck around. Do we know why, or is it just sort of just the way it happened?
1: Yeah, you'll find girl spelled G H E R L E, and you'll find goat spelled G H O O T, and things like that. Um, but I I think it's because of uh, ghost was just a phrase, or uh, it was a word you were most likely to find in print because of the phrase Holy Ghost or um, other uh, religious terms that it was in. And you know that's that's my feeling about it. I. I don't have, you know statistics on what were the actual birds, but it seems like when a word when something sticks uh, and it hangs on an irregularity like like an irregular uh, past tense verb, for example, it's the most commonly used ones that stay irregular. So you know, go went, uh, take, took, uh, but other ones like chide, chode, we don't say "chode" for "chide" anymore because we just don't say that enough.
0: No, that means something. That means something different now.
1: Oh yeah, you're right. Um, but yeah, there's a lot like um, the the things that we use over and over again very frequently become a habit, and then it becomes an ingrained habit, and it becomes a habit that you pass along either to your children or to your students or if you're a typesetter to your apprentices the habit that's most reinforced stays a habit, and the habits that are less reinforced tend to fall off.
0: Yeah, so so maybe let's talk m- more about this, particularly irregular verbs, you know, sing, sang, sung, catch, caught, eat, ate, um, and so on. Most verbs, of course, past tense verbs that we form in English have this ed ending, um, but that wasn't always the case, going back to old English, So just give us a very brief uh, overview of, you know, you say that these very common verbs, uh, commonly used verbs are where the irregularities are. Um, Why? How how does that make sense given the the timeline of the language?
1: Uh, Well, yeah, in the early old English days, there were the way of forming the past tense. There were a few different ways based on the type of was it an what noun class it was what verb class it was sorry and um it would you would change the vowel inside the word so um bake boke instead of bake bake those the ones that we still change the vowel inside are irregular now but back then that was one of the four regular ways of forming the past tense um but that became difficult to maintain once um flood of New words were coming in with French, and it's hard, it was harder to change the inside of a word that you was new or wasn't formed according to your normal language rules. And so, the one type of irregular that worked for that was adding to the end. You can always just stick something onto the end without worrying about what's going on with the other sounds and the words. Um, so, that became the preferred way of forming a past tense with a new verb and then of forming past tenses in general. So words bake bulk become bake, baked baked eh. and but words that were being repeated over and over again, the very frequent words tended to keep their old pattern. And those are the irregular verbs we have today for the most part. Um, so yeah, that that. It's it's a a regular rule in the beginning and then something changes and people choose one of the rules to adapt to that change. And then that rule becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And then that looks like the rule. And so you start applying it everywhere and except for the places where you don't apply it because you keep saying it over and over again the old way. And it wants to stay that way.
0: Right. their their frequency sort of creates this sense of familiarity um they they won't they they remain the same while the rest of the language changes right and I mean I, I think the sort of the subtext of what you're saying uh, is that p- part of the reason why English speakers would want to adapt this kind of uh, simplified verb formation uh past tense verb formation is, Quite simply, to make it easier, because you know, here we have English speakers at at this particular time, where the Norman French um, conquered England. You had a multilingual England, Um, and when you have two different, you you have a native population speaking a language. Sorry, um, a native speakers of a language speaking it, and then foreign language learners of that language speaking it. there's a tendency for simplification because of ease of communication so i guess what i'm trying what i'm trying to get at is due to language contact english became simpler
1: yeah and it's harder to mess with the inside of a word it's either easier to add it on add something on to either end of it uh and and keep the unit that you're just not sure about as is so yeah we added an ending
0: um so so one feature of english that isn't exactly irregular but is definitely odd uh, is its amount of synonyms. Uh, all languages have synonyms but English has a lot of synonyms um, and I have a feeling that this is also due at least in part uh, to you know this this uh, historical circumstance of language contact. Uh, so yeah tell us a bit more about, about that. Why do we have so many synonyms?
1: Uh, well we had uh this influx when the the french took over after the norman conquest we had this influx of french speakers but they were using but there was one there was they were of a certain social class so the the um the rulers of the country were displaced by the normans but everybody else stayed the same the the peasants the people in the fields the workers in the workshops but the the clergy, the the landowners, they were French, and they used French uh, to do everything, and to do everything official. So anything that was official was taking place in French. Anything that was in the home, in the fields, was taking place in English uh, with a different class of people. And of course, they did have to have some contact with each other, but over the centuries, the French speakers became English speakers. It wasn't that, usually when we think of language contact situations where one language kind of floods in and takes over, it's um, a sort of colonial idea where the, the they come in and they force everybody to speak their language and they destroy the schools so that the, the other language isn't passed on and it's takeover, but it, it wasn't, that wasn't what happened, it was that over the centuries, the the ruling class French people became ruling class English speakers. Um, and but when they did, they didn't have a way to say official things. So they're doing English and grabbing French to do things like uh, talk about leases and legal things and anything that wasn't uh, where English hadn't been developed at that level because it wasn't being used at that level they're speaking english but grabbing the words they need because they need they need a way to say them and that's really what what made those words come into english it was the people speaking english and grabbing french words so then it became uh so the synonyms developed at the different levels of society where we have you know dirt and we have soil and we have you know various ways of saying things based on what level of use we're talking about is it is it medical and scientific and educated or is it you know around the kitchen table so we have many many synonyms based on that kind of uh, social differentiation of where does this word where is the domain of this word uh, and they're usually still that way. They still, some words have a, you know, higher level feel about them. Um, and that that is would be because, oh, that version came in with, uh, with uh, um, the English-speaking leaders grabbing the French words they knew because that's what their education was, even though their normal life was taking place in English.
0: Yeah, so you... You allude to something I want to talk about, which is, you know, these um, synonyms, usually they're not true synonyms in in that they mean the same exact thing. They mean almost the same thing. And if you are an ESL speaker, they might appear to be completely interchangeable, but there's there's usually a shade of meaning that's, uh, you know, for native speakers so ingrained that we wouldn't even question it in terms of you know when to use a certain word versus another. And I I really love the example that you have in one of the chapters, which is um, it's big versus large, which I don't I don't think this is a class distinction necessarily, but you do argue con- quite convincingly, I think that um, we have these two very similar words whose different shades of meaning actually have some sort of etymological, um lineage uh, that can explain why why big is used in the way that big is and why large is used in the way large is, even though I mean they kind of mean the same thing. Um, so what's the difference between big and large first of all, and then you know take us back in, in terms of uh, where these shades of meaning come from?
1: Okay, well you can see a little bit of that class distinction. It's they really to us now seem exactly the same, but big is the older one and it's the old English or probably Scandinavian influence too. It ends in that G sound, but um big and then large comes in with French and big in originally, and, and if we if we now say um say to a child like oh, oh you've gotten so big. Uh, we would never say oh, you've gotten so large that that doesn't sound right, or look at the big doggy and look at the large doggy. Like that doesn't have the the casualness you need in that situation. But big uh, originally had a, a f- brought with it a sense of power. So you were big in battle, and you you it was a sense of powerfulness. Um, which links to the sense of size, because what's big is what's po- what's powerful is big, and then other uh, meanings of big. And large came in with the sense more of expansiveness, a, a big area where you can roam free. And in French phrases like largesse, it's also a sense of generosity. It's about expansiveness. So they're both, um, they, they both have roots in different uh if different related senses of big they both relate back to size but in different ways the expansiveness and generosity and large area to roman versus bigness in powerfulness in battle and you still see the difference um in the way these two words have slightly different domains we can still use them in the same domain in lots of ways a, a big uh, a big box of books is a large box of books but um but in uh in our consumer habits we've come to use large for sizes of things you buy so you go into you go and you buy a large soda you don't go buy a big soda or order a big pizza and it does it relates back to that sense of generosity and and bounty because large began in the in in, uh, during the industrial revolution when people go in to buy pieces of large coal or large bread and it was a you're buying the the biggest one that has the most the best buy and um that continued that habit continued and it's just a habit of that we apply to things we buy they're large medium small they're not Big,
0: <laughs> right? And we speakers aren't deliberately going about or consciously saying, "I'm going to use this word this way," and "I'm going to use that word that way." Um, it, you know, it, it happens at some sort of subconscious level. Is that right?
1: Yes, uh, almost everything does. Yeah, and if you if you if your child stops you and asks, um, "Mommy, why do we say a large pizza and not a big one?" you won't be able to explain it you know and then and you'll stop and you'll you'll try you'll start to think about it and, and try to explain it and then you'll run into a logical wall and that's what this the book is about that logical wall that you get to when you think yeah yeah there's got to be an answer here sure sure okay let me try and uh it's just you don't know why you don't trace it back to old english and and french and all those forces that have been working over hundreds of years to end up up at this point um and uh yeah so that's so so this is the explanation for that one but there are so many of them that we just have no internal sense of why we do that
0: right i mean in some sense that's the basis of my entire podcast which i've been running for for five years and nearly 100 episodes in you know every every word uh has some sort of story and obviously some words have more boring stories than others and we don't talk about those words on the show but a lot of words do have really interesting stories and you know little does the mommy from your example know that the answer to her child's question is tucked away in like the history of english scholarship but there is an answer
1: yeah it's not just uh english what are you gonna do it's like it's chaotic it's a crazy language and um it's yeah it's chaotic it's illogical but We can't, we can tell you, well, sometimes we can't tell you why, but we can find some kind of explanation.
0: Let's take a quick break to hear from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by italki. Italki, that's I-T-A-L-K-I, a lowercase, is a language learning platform that connects language learners with real teachers in a one-on-one personalized format. If you're like me, Trying to learn new languages by following generic pre-made curricula by yourself doesn't exactly work. But italki is different because you don't only get to choose your teacher, and not to mention your own schedule, but because these teachers are native speakers, they'll help you experience the language and the culture of that language in an authentic way. Italki is more affordable and flexible than online tutors, offline schools, and other language learning software. Offline schools can cost thousands upon thousands of dollars, but with italki, you only pay per lesson, so you can decide on a month-to-month basis or even a week-to-week basis how your language learning goals fit into your budget. Whether you're trying to ace a test, brushing up on an old language, or practicing for a foreign language interview, italki is the language learning platform for you. They have niche but practical classes like Business English, French for Tourism, and Latin American Spanish, among others. I've been using it to dive deeper into my Latin studies, and I've been having a great experience. This month, italki is celebrating its 14th anniversary, and as a celebration of this, I'd like to invite you to check out what they have to offer. italki is offering $140 in italki credit coupons to both new and old users. Words for Granted listeners can go to go.italki.com slash anniversary dash words for granted to learn more and sign up to get big credit rewards within the platform. Again, that's go.italki.com slash anniversary dash words for granted. Now, that's a lot to remember, so just go to the show notes in your podcast player and you'll find the link there. I hope you give it a shot. All right, back to the conversation. So I, I think most of what we've discussed thus far, uh, these are, you know, like I just said, these are subconscious forces. These are habits uh, that form over generations or centuries, and then the habit just becomes what is right to a particularly, a particular community of speakers. Um, these irregularities are not being deliberately enforced from on high however there are some irregularities in our language that are byproducts of people from on high saying that things should be a certain way uh, so what are some examples of those
1: uh yeah so we have all these blames to assign and one of them is blame the snobs this is area era in the language when people started to meddle consciously with the language that's when English really came into its own. Before that, it was kind of this lowly language. It wasn't Latin. It wasn't a real language. And now it's a real language and we gotta treat it like, like it's got some power authority
0: behind it. And and what what time period are we talking? Uh
1: we're talking the 16th, 17th centuries when this started. And then the 18th and 19th centuries is when you get the books and the prescript like this is right and this is wrong and you start to um, give give people a sense of insecurity about language that they then pass on to their children as, you know, don't do this because it's wrong. Um, but yes, it started, the meddling started with that insecurity about Latin. So Latin's a real language, a scholarly language, it's actually got rules and grammar, and English is this, you know, whatever language of the fields in the kitchen and of, you don't do anything real with it. You don't do anything high with it. It's it's just a thing people do. Um, and so let's make English more like Latin. And part of that was a was in spelling. So that's when all these extra silent letters were added to show what the what the Latin root of the word was. So words like you know debt, which we got from French and had been using saying debt and spelling it as d-e-t-t-e or you know something how we say it said no no this comes from the latin debitum and we're gonna stick a b in there to show that now it's debt d-e-b-t you know this is the illustrious um tradition that english is using it's got this latin in it and and a lot of that was done during the 16th 17th century adding latin-y stuff to English to help English be more of a real language because everyone knew Latin was the real language and English needed some help. Um, and we still live with all those strange
0: spellings. And some strange grammar rules as well, right? Like the, not, uh, not splitting infinitives, I feel like is the classic example from this period. Um, what's another? Uh, no, not ending sentences with prepositions. Um, oh uh, double negatives uh etc um english has had these features for centuries uh before anyone just decided to look at a foreign dead language and try to cram a living language into the rules of you know the past essentially When, when when on the ground english is getting by just fine
1: Right. English was fine. It was working. It has, it had a grammar, um, but it wasn't uh, written down anywhere. There were no grammar books. So, well, what does a grammar book look like? It's the thing you learned when you went to school and Latin was the language of education. So you're going to make this for English. Now you use the terms that you know, and you use the rules that, you know, and you try to try to apply that. And, um, and yeah, sometimes you, end up trying to force the language to do something it doesn't really do and um, we still you know we still have some the remnants of those rules are still are hanging around uh, when we don't speak like that at all uh, so um, yeah people meddled in the language uh, and some of that meddling stuck um, we separated the meanings of words that were the same word we uh, decided this would be the spelling. We we decided this would be the rule, and then passed down the rule, and then smacked people's wrists with a ruler for not doing the rule. And then they felt the flinch of the ruler every time they said it from then on. And then it actually became the rule um, in some cases. So uh, it did work in, but it, but not in a major way. But in a minor way, it did work to. Change the language and change the rules.
0: Yeah, I mean, at least in in written English and you know proper standard English, maybe not in the way that people colloquially speak uh, about making pasta and walking to the donut shop, but like you know, in 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 terms of uh, for, formal standard English, yeah, those marks are still there. Um, and and I'll ju- I'll just say just some some something that I want to get out is like this is so in retrospect naive uh these scholars i mean they're not approaching language as a linguist today would it's like really counter to you know what we think of linguistics of as a field today and
1: yeah and that that way of looking at the field is quite new uh that the 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 we we're linguists are linguists in the way that geologists look at rocks you know they're not out to do anything to the rocks they want to describe what the rocks are linguists aren't out to do anything to the language they want to describe the rock formation um but i think that way of saying this is what linguistics is is um is kind of new and not um and still not Understood or accepted by a lot of people.
0: Yeah, totally. I feel like the layperson's conception of linguistics is, oh, you must have really good grammar, or you must love you must love correcting the way other people speak. And one one last thing about these scholars from the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, particularly in their uh, revisionist spelling, uh, in order to reflect latinate etymologies they don't always get it right uh two examples that i recall from the book is island um and which which is sort of a classic example of inserting this s uh based on a false etymology this silent s but one that i didn't know is uh scissors that the c in scissors is uh, wasn't always there and it was a misplaced uh retroactive c
1: yeah, scissors was S-I-S-S-O-U-R-S or something. And it does not come from the Latin skindere, which um the word rescind does. Uh that's why there's a C in that one. But uh it lo- it looks like it should. It has something to do with cutting and it comes, it must come from that word. So yeah, let's stick the C in there, but it doesn't come from that word at all. Um, so yeah, that's and scythe, I think, also got its C that way. So um, yeah, you you're start messing with it. Um, you might get it wrong and then you might end up having to keep it that way.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess I thought um, that the SC was like a very, very old old English spelling that SC digraph uh, being common then and you know it just being one of those examples of something that didn't change along with the rest of the language. but uh, lo and behold, I learned that that's, that, that's not the case. Okay, so the last section in the book is called Blame Ourselves, and you discuss aspects of the language that are weird or irregular due to historical forces still, but uh, forces that are different than kind of what we've been discussing. Uh, What are you getting at here with this uh, notion of blame ourselves?
1: Well, there are some things that we just do with language that other languages do too. They aren't specific to English so uh things like negative polarity items we can say "Uh, this won't take long but not this will take long and why does that sort of split occur where we can say it in the negative but not the positive um that's um something called a negative polarity item other languages have them too and it's something that human language does and and that and it makes these little irregularities show up. Why you can do this way but not this way but not that way. Oh that's a negative polarity item. It can only show up in the negative. Or you know things like the way we love to continually renew the language with extreme emotion. So why do we have um why do we use literally in this so-called wrong way? This I was literally tearing my hair out. Um, it's because of the human language impulse to constantly update the the language with new words to heighten the impact, and we do that with really, you know, uh, that was one of those words. I I'm really tearing my hair out, but no one ever looks at that and says, "You're not really doing it, though." Really means in reality, and you're not in reality tearing your hair out, but. Using that using that word really became old. It's just a word. It's not. It doesn't have that much impact. When I say, "Oh, I really like it," eh, that's not so so impactful. You know, saying "I'm I so like it," I've done something new and you notice it and it sounds like I like it more. Uh, And we're gonna keep on doing that. Words get old. We come up with a new one. And then people complain about it, and then it becomes the word, or it drops out and stops being effective anymore. But it, that churning is always going to keep on going, and always going to keep those words which heighten impact changing over and changing over and changing over because they lose their impact. We got to do something about it.
0: Right. Um, now this is this is outside of the realm of uh, your your latest book, but you know, having written a book about conlangs and having thought about uh, Constructed languages. That is, um, for some amount of time, uh, you know, with all of the historical forces and like the real lived experience that goes into shaping not just English but any language. Like, could could, could one possibly construct? a language that's not out there being lived uh and spoken and and uh battered and beaten and reshaped and molded uh could we possibly construct something that is as illogical at, at its surface as you know a language like English
1: uh and I I usually the question is the other way like could we ever just make a perfect language can we get rid of all these illogical things that's what the history of invented languages is it's how can we cure language of all these crazy things and make one that just nice and logical and makes sense. And then that, and that history shows that you can't like, it's going to fail over and over and over again, or it's, or it's will never be spoken by anyone. you can keep it perfect if you keep it in a box. Mm
0: -hmm. And then,
1: but as soon as you give it to people and people start using it, it starts getting irregularities and having these problems, but if you could design a language that was as irregular as English, um, well, the I guess the the question is, what would the design goal? It seems like design goals are always about um, about perfection or or uh optimization in some way and you could say that english is optimized for what it is and what it is is this extremely flexible tool of communication and of other and of thinking and working things out it's not just a tool of communication we use it all, in all kinds of ways and it's optimized for maximum flexibility without losing transmissibility and the ability to talk about various things. And it's that's a very precarious balance that I think it would be actually very hard to engineer. Let's make a language that has just the right amount of flexibility and just the right right amount of trustability. Like, you needed things to mean things and you need them to be flexible it needs to be flex it needs to be it needs to allow for creativity but it also needs to be conservative so that you can pass it all on it needs to be learned and it needs to be a habit in some ways so so yeah i don't know if it would be possible i feel like it invented itself to be what it needed to be <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, that that just opens up a whole other realm of questions that I have that are uh, beyond beyond the scope of uh, the book that we set out to discuss, and certainly this episode. So maybe we'll just leave that open-ended for, uh, for listeners to contemplate on their own. All right, well, Erica, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you coming on to the show. Um, before you leave, tell us where we can find you and your work on the internet, and if there's anything else you want us to know.
1: Uh, well, I have this information about my books and various samples of my, the writing, the popular writing I've done on mental floss and various other publications at, uh, my website, which is my name, ericaokrant.com, which is not, it's not clear what that is from saying it. It's A-R-I-K-A is Erica and O-K-R-E-N-T is Oakrent. Um, I guess I had to become a linguist, huh? With a name Mm. like that. Uh, and, uh, I have a, a YouTube channel with the videos that I um, produced with Sean O'Neill. I didn't mention this book is illustrated with um, with cartoons by Sean O'Neill. We had a, uh, a, um, a video series we did with mental floss on little two, three minute questions about language answered with him drawing on a whiteboard and they're very easy and clear and uh, it's a great way to get words and pictures. Um, you get it in multiple levels at once. And um, and yeah, and Highly Irregular is, is out and can be found um, where books are. Uh, and I hope you take a look at the words and the pictures.
0: Awesome, all right, well, Erica, thanks so much again.
1: Thank you for having me.